0: revelation chapter 19 we took a break last week briefly to look at an old testament passage ezekiel 38 and 39 often referred to as the gog and magog war or the gog and magog prophecy Um, and we did that mainly in light of the recent attacks in israel and some of the developments taking place in the middle east so if you were not here i always like to encourage people to go listen to our previous Bible studies, and and obviously there was it, there must have been some timeliness to it, uh, just based on the number of views alone that it got on Facebook, but that or uh, YouTube. That's encouraging though, because we want people to know, we want people to have an understanding of the times in which we live. But this morning we're picking things up in Revelation where we left off just two weeks ago, right at the end of chapter 18, where Babylon at long last has finally been destroyed. That corrupt and ancient religious and political system which we saw is going to be used by the Antichrist to control the world during the last days. And stemming all the way back from the mystery religions of Babylon, it's represented as this woman that John first sees in chapter 17 who has emblazoned upon her forehead mystery Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Between chapter 17 and 18, six times we read of how the kings of the earth and the inhabitants of the earth are made drunk with the wine of her fornication. It speaks of idolatry and a seduction into a false system of worship and a system of opulent and intoxicating materialism. That's described in chapter 18, but we also read how this woman herself was drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. And so judgment has been poured out upon her, and it's been swift and severe. Three times we read how her judgment occurs in one hour, and the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth see her distance. The smoke of her burning standing at a distance, weeping, wailing, throwing dust on their foreheads and crying out, alas, that great city Babylon, for in one hour your judgment has come and she is made desolate. It's an incredibly dramatic scene. Um, If you look real quick before we get into chapter 19, look at the end of chapter 18. We'll kind of get a running start into chapter 19 this morning, but in verse 21, John Sees a mighty angel, take up a stone like a great millstone and throw it into the sea, declaring thus with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and not found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flautists, trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore, nor craftsmen of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. I think you get the point. He concludes... For your merchants were the great men of the earth, and by your sorcery all the nations of the earth were deceived. It's a picture of the utter destruction of the world system that's represented by this term Mm. Babylon. One of the things we talked about the last time we were together is how it's all going to burn and how it would be foolish for us as believers, to make any kind of investment into or develop any affection for the things of this world, as John warns us. In First John chapter 2, he says, don't love the world or the things in the world because, he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Our hearts are not designed to contain a genuine heart, a genuine love for God and a genuine love for the things of the world. And John says the world's passing away and the lust of it, but the person who does the will of God will abide forever. And the Lord says to his people in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, come out of Babylon, my people. It's the Lord calling us out of the world system because he says he does not want us to share in her her sins or receive of her plagues. David Guzik writes, Babylon is a picture of organized idolatry, blasphemy, and the persecution of God's people. Meryl C. Tenney writes, Babylon was the essence of all evil, the embodiment of cruelty and the foe of God's people, a lasting symbol of sin. And once her judgment is complete, John writes in chapter 18, verse 20, that all of heaven just erupts. Rejoice over her, O heaven, you, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. And that celebration continues this morning into chapter 19. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. John writes after these things, after the events of chapter 18, he says, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, verse 2, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. There is a running theme throughout Scripture that's probably best communicated all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Paul quotes in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, vengeance is whose? Mine, saith the Lord, The book of Hebrews adds, the Lord will judge his people. It is not our job to take vengeance on behalf of God or to seek revenge. Listen, no matter how bad we might want to or how right we might believe it is to do that. One of the speakers at last weekend's men's conference, um, he did a great Bible study. It was called A Hate-Free Heart in a Hateful World. And it was such a good message. I think that's such an important message for the church of today. All the way back in Leviticus 19, the Lord says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Paul says, Do not avenge yourself. Peter says, To this you were called, because Christ, who suffered for us, left us this example. Listen to this that we should follow in his steps, that when he was reviled, did what? Did not revile in return. When he suffered, did what? Did not threaten. Instead, he committed himself to him who judges righteously. And listen, a day is coming when God is going to execute judgment. He will take vengeance on behalf of his people, but that is not our Job, And yet, in that day, there will be much rejoicing. As we read here in verse 3, again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke, Babylon, rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders, verse 4, And the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. John says, A voice came from the throne, in verse 5, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, he says in verse 6, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. One of the things that I think is so interesting is that for the past several chapters, from chapter 6 to chapter 18 really, we have been reading about all these plagues and judgments and calamities that are going to be poured out upon planet Earth and the evil empire of the Antichrist rising to power in the world-dominating system of Babylon and the martyrs of Jesus. It's just devastating. Meanwhile, in heaven, what we read about this morning in chapter 19 is pretty much the exact same thing that we read all the way back in chapters 4 and 5. Just listen to this excerpt from chapters 4 and 5 and compare it alongside what I just read from chapter 19. Around the throne were 24 elders, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So check this out. The whole time the great tribulation has been happening here on the earth, heaven Has been having a party, and that's where you and I are gonna be. Isn't that amazing? And here's why Scripture is constantly exhorting us set your mind on things above, not on things here on the earth. Paul says, The things that are seen, they're temporary, but the things that are not seen, They're eternal. Those are the things that are going to last, the things that are invisible. They are of more substance than any of this physical stuff we can touch because this is all going to pass away. But heaven is going to last forever. In verse 7, John writes, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, verse 8, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, verse 9, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true sayings of God. So the marriage supper of the Lamb. Quite a few things we can observe about this. First of all, Jesus often spoke of this supper or this banquet or this feast in his parables, Matthew 25, uh, Luke chapter 12, and verse 14, or chapter 14, most notably Matthew chapter 22 and the parable of the wedding feast. And while those are parables, which were stories, the, the book of Revelation here reveals to us that this wedding feast Is a heavenly reality. Okay, it is going to happen. It's not just a clever sounding spiritual anecdote that Jesus tried to use to communicate a spiritual idea. It's actually gonna happen. So let me just read to you from Matthew chapter 22. You don't have to turn there, we'll put it for you on the big screen. But we're gonna read the parable of the wedding feast, and then I wanna draw out a couple of applications. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. And again he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who were invited, all things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about this, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together, All whom they found both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. That last phrase, that's why John writes in verse 9, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, I would say this, not only are those blessed who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, but those who respond to the invitation to attend. Did you notice that? In Jesus' parable, there were those who made light of the invitation. It says they went their ways, one to his farm, another to his business. Luke adds this, they all with one accord began to make excuses. You got to love it when the Bible speaks in language you can understand, right? The first said, well, I bought a piece of ground and I must go see it. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I've got to go test them. Still another said, I got married and I can't come. You've got to like that guy's excuse, right? But here's what we read. When the king heard about this, listen, Jesus says he was furious and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city saying, those who were invited to the wedding were not worthy and then what does the king tell his servants to do he says you go out into the highways and hedges and you compel them to come in so that my house will be filled okay so check this out the marriage supper of the lamb is a heavenly reality and there are people who have been invited listen who are not going to come So here's application number one. You have been invited to this banquet, but if you don't want to come, if you don't respond to this invitation, there's gonna come a time when Jesus stops pursuing you. Isn't that what he tells his servants? He says straight up, those who were invited were not worthy. And you know what he tells them? Go find new people. Don't keep chasing the people who don't want to come. You go find new people. That's application number one. So if you haven't responded to Jesus' invitation, you need to respond today because you don't know when it might be too late for you to respond to this invitation. Here's application number two. Those of us who are his servants, what are we supposed to be doing? We are supposed to be out there inviting people to this banquet. Jesus says this is a combined statement from Matthew 22 and Luke 14. Go into the highway and as many as you find invite to the wedding, bad and good. Go quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. There is an urgency to this. We need to be inviting people to the feast, kind of like we're supposed to be inviting people to Harvest Fair. And I keep telling you week after week, go join our Facebook event page Uh, Say that you're going and then scroll through, and I know that many of you haven't done that, right? Um, But that's not as big of a deal as Jesus here saying, go out there and invite people to my wedding feast. That's a commandment from Jesus that we as his followers are supposed to be doing. One more observation. John says in verse 8, it was granted to the lamb's wife to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In verse seven, he says, the lamb's wife has made herself ready. So clearly the lamb's wife is the church, right? The bride of Christ, Revelation 21.9. Now here's the question. Is it granted to the church to be arrayed in fine linen? Verse eight. Or do we make ourselves ready? Verse seven. The answer is yes. Okay. Now this kind of becomes a study unto itself, but quickly there is what we call imputed righteousness or imputed holiness. In other words, Jesus dresses us in his righteousness, but we also make ourselves ready. So there's imputed righteousness or holiness There is that which is deposited into our hearts or accounted to us at our moment of conversion, but then there is also what we call practical holiness, where we're called to, as Peter says, be holy in all of our conduct. Or Philippians 2.12 says, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 2 2, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, listen to this, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness and flesh of the Spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Listen to these two truths contained in one passage of Scripture. Ephesians 2.8, we all know this. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the Lord, right? We are not saved by our works. But then the very next verse, Paul says, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So which is it? We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. You hear that? We're not saved by our works. There's nothing that we do to earn our salvation. But now that we are saved, we have been saved for good works. In fact, Titus chapter 3 says, this is a faithful saying, and this is Paul writing to a pastor. He says, these things I want you to affirm to the people constantly. Listen, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Verse 14 says, let our people learn to maintain good works so that they don't become unfruitful like James said, faith without works is dead, right? We're not saved by our works, but now that we are saved, good works should issue forth from our lives. So I ask again, is it granted to the church to be arrayed in fine linen, or do we make ourselves ready? The answer is yes. Jesus imputes righteousness to us. He gives it to us, but then he asks that we walk in it in partnership with him. Why is this such a big deal? Because listen, coming back to the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus straight up says, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a guy there who didn't have on the wedding garment. Okay, in other words, listen, he was not dressed the way he was supposed to be and yet he was at the feast. What happened? Did the king say to him, oh man, I see that you don't have the right garment, let me go get you one. No, he said to his servants, get rid of that guy. He's not supposed to be in here. Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. The reason this is such a big deal is because there is a real wedding feast. It is a heavenly feast. Reality And those who are invited are expected to dress a certain way, and Jesus gives us the garment, verse 8. But we have to be careful to maintain good works because the fine linen is the righteous thoughts of the church? No. Is it the righteous words of the church? No. It's the righteous actions of the church. Jesus gives us the garment, but we make ourselves ready. Don't let somebody come along and sell you on the idea of easy believism. That is that now that you're saved, there is nothing you have to do. Listen, you're saved by grace. There's nothing that you do to earn your salvation. It's a free gift. But now that you have been saved by grace, you walk in it. Paul said it this way. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught. John says in verse 10 that he fell at the angel's feet who gave him this news to worship him, but the angel says to John, don't do that. He says, I'm your fellow servant of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy pretty much see the same thing happening in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel sees this vision of a glorious man and he falls down before him and the angel tells him, don't do that. I think it's also interesting too, notice the last phrase of verse 10, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. From time to time, people will approach me or write me an email or a text message that says, Kevin, why do you teach books of the Bible like Revelation, instead of preaching the gospel. Guys, the reality of it is Jesus Christ is the Bible, right? He is the Word of God made flesh, John 1.14. So when we study the Bible, it's an opportunity to encounter Jesus. John Walvoord writes this, this means that prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and loveliness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And now, oh man, we come to some of the most exciting verses in all of the Bible. David Guzik writes, there's a sense in which everything we've read before this is an introduction to this revelation, this unveiling of Jesus Christ where he returns to earth in power and glory. John writes in verse 11, watch this. He says, I saw heaven opened And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, like chapter 1. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, verse 14, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, Followed him on white horses. You know who that is, right? In verse 14, the armies in heaven following on white horses. That's you and me, right? That's you and me. David Guzik writes this The main idea here is that the Son of God leads the people of God from heaven against earth. And then he adds Notice there's no mention of any kind of armor. Or weapon for any soldier. The only armor or weapon they have is the only one they need. They are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, on a side note here, Jude tells us that a guy named Enoch, all the way back in the time of Genesis, prophesied about this. He says, Enoch, the seventh in line from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Notice the repeated idea of ungodly. Romans chapter 1 tells us, The wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness of man. But listen, there's a big, big difference between the Lord returning for his church and the Lord returning with his church. And I want to spend a moment talking about this because people sometimes become a little confused about this. Okay, one event Is the rapture of the church. Now, we've talked about this before at length in a Bible study called What's Up with the Rapture. You can find it on our YouTube channel. Yes, I'm that pastor who actually recommends my own teaching to people, okay? Because we teach the Bible here. So if you want to know a little bit more about the rapture, go look up that Bible study. But listen, in that event, Jesus comes for his church to take us off the planet and into heaven before judgment is poured out on the earth during the seven years of great tribulation. That's the event where Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, of that day and hour, no one knows. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they're eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In that day, he says, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and another is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and the other will be left. So watch, therefore, because you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But this event that we're reading of here in Revelation chapter 19, this is the occasion that John spoke of in chapter one, verse seven, where he said, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 24. And listen, context is so important because listen carefully to what Jesus says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Same thing John says in Revelation chapter 1. But Jesus straight up says, it's after the tribulation. So do you see how in one event, it's immediately after the tribulation and every eye will see him, but in another event, It's no one knows the day or the hour, and one person is taken while another person is left. How is that possible? How do those two descriptions fit together in one chapter of the Bible? This might help somebody. It's because Jesus is describing two different events. One is the rapture of the church, when Jesus comes for his bride to take us off the planet Before judgment begins, the other is the second coming, which is after the tribulation, at the end of the battle of Armageddon. And both John and Jude or Enoch, however you look at it, describe the saints as coming with the Lord. The rapture, Jesus comes for his people. The second coming, Jesus comes with his people to deal with the dragon and the Antichrist and the false prophet and to end the battle of Armageddon, although we can hardly call it a battle at all. John says in verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. We read that four times in scripture. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's a cross-reference to this, you may remember, in chapter 14. Right at the end of the chapter in verse 20, we read, The winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. I like the Old Testament reference to this, this event. Isaiah 63, listen to this. The writer asks, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, and why is your apparel red, and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And the Lord answers, I have trodden the winepress alone, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, because the day." a vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come it's awesome i love what robert mounts writes about this he says any view of god which eliminates judgment and his hatred of sin in the interest of an emasculated doctrine of sentimental affection finds no support in the strong and virile realism of the apocalypse Jesus is coming back to this earth to execute judgment and justice upon a world that has rejected him. And he will set up his perfect kingdom where he will reign and rule for a thousand years. And guys, we will come back with him and we will reign and rule with him for that thousand years. It's awesome. Now I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Because we talk about that in chapter 20. So let's stay in chapter 19 this morning. Um, John writes in verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And this is interesting to me, because this is very similar to something that we read in Ezekiel chapter 39 at the end of the battle of Gog and Magog. And no, I'm not saying that what's happening here in chapter 19 is the end of Gog and Magog. Two different occasions. One is the Gog and Magog war. What we're reading about here is the battle of Armageddon. Two different battles. But what I'm saying is on the, on the heels of the Gog and Magog War in Ezekiel 39, the Lord says, Speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble, assemble yourselves and come, gather together to my sacrificial meal, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk. You shall be filled at my table with mighty men and with all the men of war, says the Lord. Verse 19, John says, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him, Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. Again, we call it a battle. It's anything but. In fact, Second Thessalonians says that Jesus will actually consume the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. It's going to be like blowing a soap bubble for Jesus. Just, boom, gone, right? Verse 20 says, The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Now, in the event anybody in here believes in the false teaching of annihilationism the idea being that once a person goes to hell they're burned up they're consumed and that's the end of their suffering I would draw your attention to something in chapter 20 because here we just read chapter 19 verse 20 that the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire well in chapter 20 we read Jesus reigns and rules for a thousand years And at the end of that 1,000 years, the devil is cast into the lake of fire, notice this, where the beast and the false prophet are. (coughs) Not were, but where they are. This means that after 1,000 years, the beast and the false prophet are still being tormented in the lake of fire how long does hell last for it says at the end of the verse they will be tormented day and night forever and ever it is the strongest expression of time in the hebrew language hell lasts forever which is why jesus does not want us to go there he teaches on hell more than heaven because he knows it's a real place, and we were never intended to go there. Hell was created for Satan and his angels. But because we are eternal beings, every single one of us has a spirit, that's the eternal part of us. Once we die, there are only two places your eternal spirit can go. Heaven, which is where you've been invited, But if you choose not to go there, there's only one other option, and it's hell. So people ask all the time, why does God send people to hell? He doesn't. He's invited them to come to heaven, and they've rejected the invitation. And so the only other place they can go is hell, and it lasts forever. Back in chapter 19, verse 21 concludes, "...the rest were killed with the sword." which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Check this out. The word of God will either save you or slay you. Okay? In the same way, there are two suppers. Did you notice this in chapter 19? There's two suppers that are talked about here. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb, back in verses 7 through 9. And John says, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But then there is the supper of the great God in verses 17 through 19 where all the birds of heaven are invited to eat the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. All the birds will be filled with their flesh. So the question becomes which of these two suppers do you want to attend? Because you're going to be at one of them. You're either going to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb, and respond to his invitation, or you're going to be on the menu at the supper of the great God, right? You don't want that. You don't want the birds of the planet feasting on your flesh and being made drunk with your blood. No, 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 You want to be in heaven, clothed in white linen, seeing the four living creatures and the 24 elders falling down before Jesus and casting your crowns, right? That's where we want to be. We have to respond to the invitation. So maybe you're here this morning and you never have responded to the invitation to attend this marriage supper. This chapter, hopefully this chapter, it demonstrates for you that it's a heavenly reality. It's going to happen. Like, this is a heavenly reality. There's a marriage supper. God wants us to spend forever in his presence because he loves us so much. And again, he knows there's only one other alternative, and it's this great supper of God, and it's eternal separation in the lake of fire. So will you respond to that invitation today if you haven't done that? The worship team's going to come back up, and we're going to close with two songs because we believe that worship is our response to God. Sometimes we approach worship as though it's we're, we're trying to get God to respond to us. We, we worship because of what he has done for us. We worship him as a response to what we see in the word of God. And so I would just encourage you as the worship team plays, you can either come forward, you can kneel in the altar, And pray. We'll have prayer partners available who would love to pray with you. But if you're here this morning and you've never responded to that invitation, I just encourage you to do so. Father, just thank you for your word. Thank you that you have loved us so much to reveal to us the truth. And God, you tell us that if we abide in your worth, it's the truth that your word reveals that will Set us free. And I pray this morning, God, for anyone who has not yet been delivered from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of your love. I pray that you would do that work now. We know that salvation is of the Lord. It's not my words. It's not the music that the worship team plays. It's not a prayer we pray for anyone. It's a work of your spirit. Just draw people to yourself today. Write them. Write their names in your book that they might leave this place today knowing they've been born again, adopted into your family. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for an opportunity to be here today, to sit at your feet and hear your word. We bless you. We give you all the glory and honor. It's in your name we pray.